I need? Do I need? Do I need? A wire? A wire? In my heart. In my heart. In my heart. Do I really need a wire in my heart? A Boston Scientific Podcast. Well, guys, we're back with another episode of Do I Really Need a Wire in My Heart, a Boston Scientific Podcast. So when you hear this song, what does it make you think of? Leah? Well, that makes me think of the Big Easy, Cajun food, those delicious New Orleans beignets made fresh and warm and crisp. Mm, outstanding. How about you, Jay? I think about Mardi Gras, you know, Bourbon Street and Southern Hospitality. Well, both of your answers are correct, but there's one hidden gem that neither of you have mentioned. Have you guys ever heard of The Operator? No need to ask, he's a smooth operator. I'm guessing not that one. This is the operator. How may I connect your call? And probably not that one either. Hi, my name is Daniel Morin. I'm a cardiac electrophysiologist at the Ochsner Medical Center in New Orleans, Louisiana, director of cardiovascular research here at the medical center. Now this sounds more like it. We get to interview an electrophysiologist? This is so exciting. What are we talking about? AFib, a flutter? How about SVT? No, Leo, the topic today is actually a bit more scary. Sudden cardiac death and the utility of implantable cardiac defibrillators. We're going to discuss the mainstay of sudden cardiac death therapy, which is transvenous implantable cardiac defibrillators, as well as a relatively new kid on the block, subcutaneous implantable cardiac defibrillators, or SICD, which appear to be gaining traction in the rhythm management arena. So we're not having warm, delicious beignets? Did I ever tell you guys about the time I went to Mardi Gras and there were two-for-one hurricanes? Hey guys, I think we can have the beignets after the show, and I would love to hear your Fat Tuesday adventure, but we need to get the show started. What you're about to experience is the Operator Series, a two-part podcast where we dive into the mind of Oshner Medical's very own electrophysiologist, Dr. Dan Morin. Enjoy. Sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death are extremely common, unfortunately. I lost my own father to sudden cardiac death when I was 14, and he was 43 years old. Unfortunately, it affects a lot of other people like me. There's about 450,000 sudden cardiac arrests each year, and that makes up about 50% of all cardiovascular deaths. And if you take that number and compare it to all the other causes of death, Sudden cardiac death is second only to all cancers combined in terms of numbers of lives lost. Uh, so it's really affecting uh, a lot of people, which is a big part of why I do what I do. Dr. Morn, we're looking at transvenous ICDs versus SICDs, and it certainly sounds like in your practice, there has been a progression or evolution here. So what ultimately informed that? And are we really looking at transvenous ICDs becoming obsolete with the growth of SICDs? It's an evolution sort of de facto because years ago, the transvenous ICD was the only type of ICD that we had available. Only about, I think, eight years ago, maybe, subcutaneous ICD became available. And ICDs in general are great. Remember, we just discussed what sudden cardiac arrest is and the importance of treating sudden cardiac arrest immediately. I tell people, you know, as much as I like you, I can't go to your house and just wait for you to have one of these things all the time and then apply my external defibrillator pads to you and then give you a shock. But what I can do is give people 
a defibrillator. These things save lives without any human input. So no matter where you are, I say oftentimes, if you're in the middle of a field in France and nobody is nearby and you fall into the field because your heart stops, well, you're done for. Ah, mon chéri, it happened again. What? What happened? You fibrillated. And I am tired of carrying around this huge defibrillator. Too much stress, Claude. Too much stress. Unless you've got one of these defibrillators, which will immediately detect the bad rhythm and then pace you out of it or shock you out of it and save your life so that you can move on. As I said, in the past, the only type of defibrillator that we had was the transvenous defibrillator. And that senses what the heart is doing by virtue of actually having a wire that goes down through the bloodstream and into the heart, into the right lower chamber of the heart, sort of where the business happens. And with that wire, the device, which is a little computer, usually in the shoulder area, can tell what the heart is doing. And if the heart behaves, meaning if it's in the you know the correct rhythm all the time, then the device will do nothing at all. It'll just sit there and watch. But if the heart goes into ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, the device knows about that immediately. And then in a matter of seconds, it's able to deliver life-saving therapy. The issue, though, was that these leads that go through the bloodstream are the weakest link of that system oftentimes. Now, these things are just machines, right? And machines all have some amount of failure. And unfortunately, as good as these wires are and all the other components, every once in a while, there's a problem with it. And oftentimes with defibrillators, the problem is in the lead. So transvenous ICDs are definitely not obsolete right now. Dr. Morant, the transvenous ICD appears to be the workhorse with years of data and a somewhat predictable outcome. And then along comes this new kid, the subcutaneous implantable cardiac defibrillators. I imagine that initially people perceived the SICDs as something of a panacea, but there has to be limitations to its use, right? We'll talk about the subcutaneous ICD, but sometimes you you can't use a subcutaneous ICD because the patient's EKG is not right. That makes it such that the uh, SICD would not be able to detect and deliver therapy appropriately. Sometimes you need to be able to pace the heart. And with current iterations of the subcutaneous ICD, you can't pace inside the heart. So sometimes people's hearts are too slow. uh, And that's when the pacemaker function of defibrillators can come in. And also some types of fast rhythms can be terminated or stopped without a shock. They can be stopped by what's called anti-tachycardia pacing, where the device delivers pacing at a little bit faster than what the rhythm is. And sometimes that can terminate the arrhythmia without a shock, which is really great. Lastly, the other thing that you need to put transvenous leads in for is to deliver something called cardiac resynchronization therapy, uh, in which case sometimes when people's hearts are weak because of dyssynchrony between the two different walls of the heart. And if the two walls of the heart aren't squeezing at the same time, that makes the squeezing function of the heart not as efficient. So if we put wires on the left and wires on the right, we can then stimulate both sides of the heart at the same time, deliver resynchronization therapy and help people to feel better on a day-to-day basis. So those are some of the reasons why you would need to use a transvenous ICD. So I don't think transvenous ICDs are completely obsolete under any circumstance uh, at the present time. What are we looking at 
as far as lead complications with transvenous ICDs? So, yeah, so there's more lead-related problems when you implant a transvenous ICD. There's a lot of different things that can happen. you you got to remember that these leads are, you know, they're wires, just like the wire that's going to your computer or going through your car or whatever. But you have to remember that these things are moving all the time because they're in a biological system. Hey, buddy, you mind not bumping into me? There's not a lot of room up here in the right atrium. Hey, you bumped me. I watched you try and tangle me up around the bundle of hiss. Hey, not my fault, dude. I got a fractured lead. You impede my movement anymore, wise guy. Watch what happens. What are you going to do, tough guy? Punch a hole through that septal wall? That's it. The heart is beating all the time. The leads are oftentimes attached to the shoulder. So that's moving around quite a bit. And in some areas, the lead is going through sort of a a tight space. The most significant of those tight spaces is in between the first rib and and the clavicle or collarbone where uh, oftentimes the lead can get pinched in that location. So this can sometimes result in fracture of the lead. And of course, if a fracture of the lead occurs, well, then uh, energy can't go through that lead. And you're either not able to pace in that case, uh, or you're not able to sense what the heart is doing. Under some circumstances, if a fracture is beginning to occur, there can be signal noise on the lead. And that can then be interpreted as the device uh, by the device as uh, a bad, fast rhythm resulting in an inappropriate shock. Or even if the fracture is complete, you could have failure to deliver therapy. The device could try to deliver a shock to the heart, but if the lead is fractured, then you might not be able to do that. Good evening. I'm your Boston Scientific News Correspondent, Stone Papadopoulos. All right, listeners, it's that time for the BSC Do I Really Need a Wire in My Heart mid-podcast recap. Wow, a lot to unpack as Dr. Dan Morin covers a considerable amount of information in a short period of time. So what are some important takeaways? Let's go to my co-anchors. I'm fascinated by the sheer numbers of sudden cardiac arrest patients and how common this disorder actually is. Yeah, I mean, just hearing what goes into placing a transvenous ICD as well as some of the complications. I mean, it sounds like we are going to dive more into this as the podcast continues. In addition, it doesn't sound like SICD is without limitations, but for the right patient, it can prove to be a solid therapy for a rather serious disorder. Excellent recap, you two. Let's jump back into the conversation with Morin. Now, in addition, there are other ways that the lead can fail. Sometimes the leads rub up against each other or up against the up against the can, and the insulation that's on the outside of it, just like every other lead, can sometimes erode away. That's called an insulation erosion. In addition, because the wires are always going through the blood vessel, over time, your body may develop some obstruction in that location as the fibrous material grows around those leads, and that can cause problems with a future lead placement or causing symptomatic obstruction. Sometimes uh, it can be so obstructive there that it completely impedes flow from the arms and head 
causing something called SVC syndrome or uh, superior vena cava syndrome, in which case the patient gets all puffy in their, in their face and their blood vessels get all engorged and it's very uncomfortable. Dr. Moore, what kind of complications can we anticipate with the placement of transvenous leads into the heart? Because you're putting these leads down into the heart and you're actually, under most circumstances, actually screwing the tip of the lead into the myocardium inside the heart, and then those things can move over time. Sometimes the lead is unfortunately able to perforate or go right through the very thin wall of the uh, right ventricle, or if you put a lead in the in the right atrium uh, up there as well. So lead perforation can be a problem um, that then requires removal with the procedure. Some amount of risk to that as well, because you know if you pull the wire out through a hole, maybe you're unplugging the dike, and there might be some escape of blood from the inside of the heart to the outside of the heart, causing big problems. What about lead infection? Yeah, so unfortunately, with any foreign body being in a person, leads can get infected. The only way that we can totally clear the infection is to perform an extraction. Oftentimes, it is not the case that we can just grab those leads and pluck them out, no problem. Uh, And the reason for that is that while the foreign body has been inside the blood vessel, the body has sort of grabbed onto those leads with fibrous tissue. So oftentimes we have to use either a laser sheath uh, that goes down over the lead in order to cut away the fibrous tissue in order to allow removal of of the lead. Or sometimes we use mechanical cutting tools to go down the lead. As you might imagine, shooting a laser inside somebody's chest and heart and blood vessels or using these cutting tools comes with some amount of risk. The biggest risk, of course, would be if the laser or the cutting tools go somewhere where we don't want them to go. So we don't do lead extraction lightly, but we do do it when we need to do it in order to cure the patient. Hey, Dr. Moran, a couple of follow-up questions on that. Can the transvenous ICD detect lead fracture, or is this something that we find post-mortem when the patient has their sudden cardiac arrest? Boy, you know, we, we hope to find them as much as possible. So we watch our patients, uh, you know, very closely. So patients with a, with a defibrillator, with modern defibrillators anyway, most of them are connected to what's called remote monitoring. Uh, and they have a uh, box next to their bed at home that communicates with their defibrillator, sort of like, you know, Bluetooth every night and tells us if, if there's any problems. And these devices are very smart. So oftentimes they can tell when a lead is having a problem, like if the impedance or resistance of the wire increases over time, that implies that, you know, there's something wrong with the wire. And then especially if that goes together with an increase in impedance with signal noise indicates a a lead fracture that has happened over time. And the device oftentimes is able to detect that. And some devices will change the way that they behave in response. Same issue with erosion. Are we looking at the leads eroding and are we going to see impedance differences with that as well? Kind of same concept as it would be with a fractured lead? It's kind of the same concept, but in the opposite direction. So if a lead fracture causes reduction in the ability for um, energy to travel through the system, the opposite is insulation erosion, in which case it's easy for energy to escape from the system. Uh, And so that makes impedance go way down. And that is also detected uh, by the device. It gives us an alarm. All right, guys, welcome back to the feud. A hundred people were surveyed. What is the number one complication resulting in the need for extraction of transvenous devices? Is it a fracture? 
Erosion. I'm sorry, the number one answer is... I think the most common one that we see is infection. We're an extraction center, uh, and not every place can do extractions because you need someone who's trained in it and a cardiothoracic surgeon on backup and uh, the laser and all the other equipment. We oftentimes get people transferred in from elsewhere where they're followed for their defibrillator under most circumstances, but then, oh, all of a sudden they have bacteria in their blood. And well, most of the time when you have bacteria in your blood, it is also landed on the leads. And we find that uh, we need to take those out. Uh, Otherwise, we won't be able to clear the infection completely. Well, this concludes the first podcast with Oshner Medical Center's electrophysiologist, Dr. Dan Morin. Leah, give us a little foreshadowing on what we can expect in the second podcast. Okay. Sounds like Morin will be discussing the transition from transvenous ICD to SICD, which is kind of cool. Then he bounces into the shared decision-making aspect with his patients. A lot of material to cover. Hey, and don't forget about the papers as well as the future of cardiac rhythm technology. A special thank you to Dr. Dan Morin, or as we refer to him as, and Boston Scientific for providing us the liberties to make an entertaining yet educational content. We hope you continue to listen to and appreciate Do I Really Need a Wire in My Heart? a Boston Scientific Podcast. Do I need, do I need, do I need, do I need a wire, a wire in my heart, in my heart, in my heart. Do I really need a wire in my heart? A Boston Scientific Podcast.